Welcome to the Afternoon Light Summer Series produced by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. In this summer series, you will hear presentations from our November 22 conference on Coming to Power, Learning to Govern and Gathering Momentum 1943-54. to In today's episode, you'll hear from the Honourable George Brandis KC, who delivered the keynote address at the conference, followed by Nicole Flint, whose paper was on Menzies' Miracle, the Foundation of the Liberal Party of Australia, and finally, Anne Henderson on Menzies and the Banks. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Let me begin by acknowledging the work of the Robert Menzies Institute, and in particular of its director, Georgina Downer, in perpetuating the legacy of the statesman describes as Australia's greatest prime minister. Was Menzies our greatest prime minister? Of course, the greatness of historical figures is a subjective judgment. When the figure is a political leader, inevitably a largely partisan one as well. Few Labor voters would call Menzies our greatest Prime Minister, just as few Liberals would award that accolade to such Labor heroes as, say, Gough Whitlam or Paul Keating. There are some objective metrics, the most obvious being longevity. On that score, as we all know, Menzies wins hands down. 18 years and 163 days across two terms as Prime Minister. The first, brief and largely unsuccessful, The second, slightly more than 16 years, by far the longest of any holder of the office. To put that length of service into its historical context, by the time he had retired on Australia Day 1966, Menzies had been Prime Minister for slightly more than a quarter of the entire history to date of the Australian Commonwealth. He was one of only four Prime Ministers, the others being Fisher, Hughes and Chifley, to have led the nation during both peace and world war. By the time he left office, he was the senior statesman of the Commonwealth in an era when the Commonwealth meant much more than it does today. Of course, longevity is not the test of greatness. However, it does tell us two important things. First, no political leader in a democratic system remains in office for such a long time without winning a lot of elections. And on the measure of electoral victories alone, Menzies was most certainly Australia's most successful politician at the national level. His score, one loss, 1946, and seven wins at every election from 1949 to 1963 would be the envy of any sporting team, let alone any political leader. As a result of his stupendous electoral success, his time in government exceeded that of all but one other political leader in a comparable parliamentary democracy in the 20th century. The exception was Canada's Mackenzie King, who served for more than 21 years. And in non-Westminster democracies as well, he was in office longer than any American president, French president, German chancellor, Indian prime minister or Japanese prime minister of the last century. Only dictators who did not have to seek a periodic electoral mandate led their nations for longer. Secondly, the perspective which longevity gives enables us to get a better sense of a political leader. 
the simple reason that the longer the time in office, the greater the opportunity they have to shape the direction of the nation. On the other side of the coin, since politics is a uniquely hazardous occupation, the longer a leader serves, the better we are able to judge how they handle themselves during times when the political waters become choppy. In the case of the long post-war Menzies government, its longevity coincided with a period of stability and economic prosperity unmatched in Australia's history. Perhaps coincided is the wrong word because there was unquestionably a causal relationship between policy and prosperity. But before I turn to the actual achievements of Menzies' governments, let me say something about the man himself. Because in his prime, he seemed the very embodiment of the Australian establishment, it is often forgotten how humble Menzies' origins were. The classic scholarship boy who came to Melbourne from a tiny rural town of Japarit. In fact, it is arguable that his background was more modest than that of any other Liberal Prime Minister, and of some Labor ones as well. Whitlam's father, for instance, was the Commonwealth Crown Solicitor. Menzies' exceptional intellectual ability, first demonstrated and reminded in this very room where he was the preeminent law student of his time and won the Supreme Court Prize, the prize awarded to the top law student of any year at the University of Melbourne. That exceptional intellectual ability produced early success at his chosen calling, the bar. Famously, in 1920, at the age of just 25, without a senior counsel to lead him, and facing more than a dozen of the cream of Australia's most senior barristers, he won the engineer's case, by far the most important constitutional decision of the High Court in the first half of the 20th century. This was a case that decided that in interpreting the Constitution, the Commonwealth heads of legislative power in Section 51 should be given their full meaning, free of implied limitations on their scope, upon which earlier High Courts with more sensitivity to the rights of the states, had insisted. It led to a significant rebalancing of the Federation towards the central government. After his victory in engineers, his career at the bar was made. And in the 1920s and early 1930s, he appeared in many of the most important cases in the Supreme Court of Victoria, the High Court and the Privy Council. The leader of the Victorian bar in those days, Owen Dixon, KC, chose Menzies exclusively as his junior and made him his protégé. Dixon is said to have despaired of Menzies' decision to abandon the bar for politics, although, as Dixon's diaries reveal, that did not stop him feasting on the juicy political gossip which the young Menzies would share with him in his chambers. When, in 1952, Menzies appointed Dixon as Chief Justice of the High Court, it was not lost on anyone in a position to know that it was an office which Menzies, had he not chosen the political path, may well himself have filled. No other Australian Prime Minister enjoyed such an illustrious career before they entered Parliament, and no other Prime Minister or political leader comes close to Menzies intellectually. The claim is sometimes made that H.V. Evatt was his equal or better though that claim is usually made by people who are not in a position to judge. 
When I was young, I was befriended by Sir John Kerr, who knew both men very well, was indeed an Ebbett protege, and I remember asking him about the two of them. He told me, quite emphatically, that there was no doubt in his mind that Menzies was the better lawyer and had the better intellect. So it is surely an aspect of Menzies' claim to greatness that he was, and I would submit by a wide margin, the most talented Australian ever to have occupied the position of Prime Minister. His talents were not just as one of the most, arguably the most, brilliant lawyers of his generation. His erudition beyond the law, the massive range of his reading and scholarship, particularly in literature and history, as the thousands of volumes of the Menzies Library, of which this institute is the custodian to speak, is evidence of that, although it is possible that his intellectual breadth in fields beyond the law was matched by Alfred Deacon. One little known fact about Menzies, and this can be seen in his library, was his devotion to poetry. He was actually himself given to the occasional composition of verse, but it must be said that it seldom rose above the level of witty doggerel, often delivered in after-dinner speeches to his beloved Savage Club. And we have it from Heather Henderson's memoir of her late father that the evening before he was to give a major speech, it was his habit to read not government briefing papers, but poetry, to get the rhythms running through his mind, the better to find the right cadence on the morrow. All of that being said, neither precocious professional accomplishment as a barrister, nor a mind deeply steeped in history and well furnished with the best literature are enough of themselves to make a great prime minister or even a good one. For that, the ultimate and really the only test is what is achieved in the furnace of politics. And on that score alone, Menzies' claim to greatness is, in my view, secure. As we know, he single-handedly fashioned the Liberal Party from the wreckage of non-Labour politics in the early 1940s and led it for 21 years, all but the first five of them in government. In doing so, he created Australia's most successful political party, an election-winning machine, as my former colleague Christopher Pye once described it, with 19 victories out of 30 elections, including seven of the last 10. No other Australian political leader has ever done what Menzies did, built effectively from the ground up the structure of one whole side of politics. Great though the creation of the Liberal Party was, as a purely political achievement, it was essentially a mechanistic one. It is to what he achieved in government, the legacy question, that one ultimately must look in appraising Menzies' political career. Although the focus of this conference is on the period between 1943 and 1954, for the purposes of this keynote, I want to take a slightly longer view of the whole period of the Menzies' governance but to concentrate in particular on the importance of the election of 1949. There are many signal achievements, the exploration of some of which are the subject of the detailed discussion in the papers we'll enjoy in the coming two days. Let me mention just a few of the big ones. The ANZUS Treaty of 1951, one of the world's longest enduring alliances, 
and the bedrock of Australian security for more than 70 years. The development of Canberra as a great capital city, a project in which he took particular pride, most of which took place during his tenure and with his guidance. The significant expansion of Australian universities following the Murray Report in 1957, both in the funding of universities themselves and the expansion of the opportunity to attend them by the extension of the Commonwealth Scholarship Scheme, itself an earlier Menzies government initiative. The Colombo Plan, which twinned his enthusiasm for education with engagement with our region, and again in the field of education, the extension from 1964 of Commonwealth funding, in the language of the time, state aid, to non-government schools, the vast majority of which were relatively poor Catholic schools. This latter was more than merely a significant advance in education policy at a time when Australia was still significantly divided on religious and sectarian lines. And as someone who attended a Catholic school in the 1960s, I remember it. It was a massive statement coming from a political party at the time dominated by Protestants of what we would today call inclusion. Every Prime Minister, well, almost every Prime Minister, can point to a list of achievements. Menzies is no different, though his achievements were on a scale and of significance more impressive than most. But there is something deeper, which I think is the real key to Menzies' claim to greatness. It is the kind of society he created in the years after the Second World War. Some, though by no means all subsequent governments, made important changes. Whitlam's extension of social democratic policies, Hawke and Keating's internationalisation of the economy, Howard's reform to the tax system. But these were adjustments of, and improvements to, the society Menzies created. A property-owning democracy undergirded by a social safety net, structured with ladders of opportunity, both aspirational and egalitarian. There are some, particularly historians of the left, who mock those years of peace and prosperity as a kind of lotus land of quiescence and lack of ambition. Commentators like that no doubt prefer the excitement and drama of the Whitlam years, but millions of everyday Australians thought otherwise. For them, the ability to buy a home, raise a family, enjoy a secure job, living in a peaceful community and a stable society, were far to be preferred to the political sturm und drang that excites the commentariat. That predictable, prosperous society is what the post-war Menzies government delivered, and it remains the bedrock of Australia today. It is captured in the modest but civilised vision which he had rhapsodised in his Forgotten People broadcasts in the early 1940s when he spoke of Holmes material, Holmes human and Holmes spiritual, quoting, the real life of this nation is to be found in the homes of people who are nameless and unadvertised and who, whatever their individual religious conviction or dogma, see in their children their greatest contribution. The home is the foundation of sanity and sobriety. It is the indispensable condition of continuity 
Its health determines the health of society as a whole. One of the best things in us induces us to have one little piece of earth with a house and a garden, which is ours. My home is where my wife and children are. The instinct to be with them is the great instinct of civilised man. The instinct to give them a chance in life, to make them not leaners but lifters, is a noble instinct. There have been echoes of that speech down the years on the liberal side of politics. In John Howard's white picket fence view of Australia in the 1980s, in Joe Hockey's 2014 budget speech, in Scott Morrison's Quiet Australians. And although the sentiments Menzies expresses are modest, indeed homely, they capture in a very practical way the essence of the liberal view of the relationship between the citizen and the state, that the role of government is a limited one as an enabler of individual citizens and families. For, as Menzies goes on to say, human nature is at its greatest when it combines dependence upon God with independence of man. We offer no affront. On the contrary, we have the warmest human compassion towards those whom fate has compelled to live upon the bounty of the state. When we say that the greatest element in a strong people is a fierce independence of spirit. That is the only real freedom. The moment a man seeks moral and intellectual refuge in the emotions of a crowd, he ceases to be a human being and becomes a cipher. Now, it is not the vision which is modest, but its view of the modest role and the proper limitations of the power of the state. The corollary of a modest view of the state is a vision of an empowered, fiercely independent, self-reliant, free citizenry. We have become so used to the idea of Australia as a prosperous property-owning democracy with comparatively high standards of living and an enviable quality of life that it seems almost commonplace to recite it. Yet, it didn't happen by accident. It happened because of the policy choices which post-war governments made during the long years of prosperity and stability over which Menzies presided. There was nothing inevitable about those choices. In fact, if we consider the world as it would have looked at the time of the 1949 election, the most striking thing to me is that the values and policies on which Menzies based his campaign the values of the Forgotten People speeches and the political platform of the Liberal Party were so against the tide of the times. The command economy of wartime was still fresh in people's minds. In the United Kingdom, which most Australians in those days still thought of as the mother country and whose political example they tended to follow, the Attlee government was busily giving effect to the beverage report and building a new Jerusalem of expanded government and nationalised industries. Social democratic governments or socialist governments had recently been elected in France and elsewhere in Europe. In the United States, the Truman administration had inherited and adopted the legacy of interventionist government 
bequeathed by Roosevelt. Almost uniquely in the democratic world, in Australia, a government was elected which explicitly advocated free enterprise, the denationalisation of industries, and the encouragement of middle-class security through property ownership rather than the welfare state. This was not an embrace of laissez-faire capitalism. It would not be until the 1980s that Liberal Party leaders, notably John Howard, attracted by the examples of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, moved somewhat in that direction, at least in their rhetoric. In the concluding sentences of the Forgotten People broadcast, Menzies was quite explicit about this. Individual enterprise must drive us forward. That does not mean that we are to return to the old and selfish notions of laissez-faire. The functions of the state will be much more than merely keeping the ring within which the competitors will fight. Our social and industrial obligations will be increased. Nevertheless, at the 1949 election, Menzies and his Liberal Party committed themselves and his governments subsequently pursued a liberal capitalist rather than social democratic welfarist model. That was both profoundly at odds with the direction of most of the democracies at the time and, I would argue, the foundation of modern Australia's prosperity. Was Menzies Australia's greatest Prime Minister? I certainly think so. But as I said at the beginning, that is inevitably a subjective and partisan judgment. What I think can be said with somewhat less subjectivity and partisanship is that in those post-war years, he set the direction of Australian history more powerfully than any other Australian Prime Minister has done. And in doing so, was the architect of modern Australia. Thank you. morning everyone it is wonderful to be here this is the first time I've spoken in public for about six months so I may be a bit rusty just to warn you all and I really do want to acknowledge the incredible work that Georgina Downer is doing and Zach and Nina as well here at the Menzies Institute it is so important that we liberals talk more about our past and celebrate our past Extra special thanks to Georgina, Zach, and then also for letting me speak first. So I don't have the pressure of following on from all of the far more brilliant and experienced contributors who you'll be hearing from today and tomorrow. So I'm just going to start with a quick few questions, uh, mainly to make sure that your coffee's kicked in and that you haven't fallen asleep or that you don't fall asleep during my talk. Who grew up in the country? I did. Anybody else? There's a couple. Okay. Yeah, good. Wonderful. Who grew up with no television, or if you did have a TV, you only had one or two channels, because I ticked that box as well, right? Good, there's a lot of us. Okay, this one's me really showing my age. Who didn't have a computer at home growing up? Okay, good, I'm in good company so far. 
and who therefore played a lot of board games when they were growing up because I certainly did. I was also the eldest of four children. My youngest brother is only five years younger than me. So four of us, we had a ready-made perfect number of board game players. We played a lot of Scrabble, Squatter, Monopoly, you name it, we had it. But the one board game that came to mind when I was putting my talk together today was Cluedo. And we did play a lot of that. And I'm sure some of you have played it. It's murder mystery board game. You have to work out who killed Dr. Black. Was it Miss Scarlet in the library with a candlestick? Was it Professor Plum in the ballroom with a rope? Or Reverend Green with a dagger in the kitchen? And so on. So the mystery that I'm solving today, and tasked with solving today, is was Robert Menzies the sole or primary reason for the formation of the Liberal Party of Australia in 1944 to 45? Did Menzies alone create the party, a party that remains almost unchanged today in 2022 in terms of organisational structure and platform, or at a minimum, was he a key driving force of the creation of the party? I think it's important at the outset to do a quick recap of key events leading up to the formation of the party, particularly as they pertain to Robert Menzies. Menzies, a member of the Victorian Parliament at the time, was handpicked by Prime Minister Joe Lyons to contest the federal seat of Kuyong in 1934 for the United Australia Party, or the UAP, as I'll refer to them as. Menzies won, he joined Lyons' cabinet, but in late 1938, he gave a speech that was interpreted as highly critical of Prime Minister Lyons. He then resigned from Cabinet in March 1939 and Joe Lyons passed away in office in April 1939. Menzies became Prime Minister and he won not the first but the third leadership ballot by just four votes. Because Menzies became leader, the Country Party pulled out of the Federal Coalition with long-time Country Party leader Earl Page launching a scathing attack in the House on Menzies. World War II began, the UAP hobbled through the 1940 election, was returned as a minority government. Three of Menzies, just prior to the election, three of Menzies' close friends and cabinet colleagues were tragically killed in a plane crash. And remember, he only held the party room by four votes, so he'd just lost three of those four. And Menzies lost the confidence of his cabinet and other colleagues who were scathing about him, his arrogance and his lack of people skills. So he resigned as Prime Minister in August 1941 and said he would take some time to lie down and bleed a while. Country Party leader Fadden became PM. He lost the confidence of the Parliament about three months later. Labour assumed government. Billy Hughes, the gift that kept on giving to the non-Labour parties, bounced back to become leader of the UAP in his late 70s at the time. Fadden became leader of the opposition. The country party was running opposition. And Labour won an absolute landslide election federal victory in August 1943 with 49 seats to the UAP's 12. Labour also went on the attack over Menzies' war planning as Prime Minister, his policies and war efforts. Given this, could there really be a more unlikely individual capable of pulling together a diverse range of groups and parties and individuals from around Australia to form the Liberal Party, which has stood the test of time since 1944? Surely the answer is no. Who would think such a man could inspire people and bring them together to form a new party? So, Cluedo style, I have a list of so-called suspects or potential co-founders of the Liberal Party 
including Elizabeth May, as she was known, Couchman from Victoria with her thousands of Australian Women's National League members, William Anderson from Victoria with his Services and Citizens Party members, Charles Kemp, also Victoria of the Institute of Public Affairs with his economic skills and business connections, Ernest White from New South Wales and his Liberal Democratic Party members, and Thomas Ritchie, also from New South Wales, talented businessman and volunteer. There are more, but these are some of the key players. However, before I go further into the detail about who these individuals were and what their contribution to the formation of the Liberal Party was, it's helpful to do a quick recap of why it was necessary to form the Liberal Party at all in 1944 and what an absolute miracle the formation of the party was. After all, the formation of the party occurred some four decades after Federation. You would really think that we Liberal types would have had our act together by that stage, but we absolutely did not. Checkered Liberal past is no doubt known to all of you, and scholars still generally refer to the Liberals pre-44-45 as the non-Labor parties or forces because that's far easier than listing off all of the various iterations. It also allows Liberals to gloss over the fact they, the anti-socialists, were led in government by not one but two former Labor Party defectors as Prime Minister. So between 1901 and 44, there were five separate Liberal incarnations. From Federation until 1909, we had Alfred Deakin's protectionists and George Reid's anti-socialist free traders. The fusion of the protectionists and free traders in 1909 saw the creation of the Liberal Party Mark I by Alfred Deakin. These Liberals then joined with ex-Labor Prime Minister Billy Hughes to form the Nationalists in 1917. The Nationalists then turned to another ex-Labor MP, Joe Lyons, in 31 to form the UAP. In terms of solving the question, was the formation of the Liberal Party of Australia Robert Menzies' miracle alone? It's really useful to have a close look at the UAP and the broader political context at the time. There was a lot happening in the political space around Australia leading up to and during the decade the UAP was in existence. The Nationalists had lost government in 1929 after six years in power under Prime Minister Stanley Bruce. Thanks to, no other than again, the gift who kept on giving, Prime Minister Billy Hughes, who with five other Nationalists crossed the floor, forced an election and we lost government, sorry, the Nationalists lost government and Hughes also set up his own party. The result at that election was catastrophic for the Nationalists in terms of the number of seats lost. They went from 29 to 14. And Prime Minister Bruce famously lost his seat in Parliament at the same time. Around this time, there was an abundance of activist leagues and pressure groups who were gaining traction around Australia, causing alarm within political parties because their expressed aim was to compete with and in some instances replace political parties. South Australia's Citizen League had 20,000 members and inspired the creation of the Victoria All for Australia League, which rose to 80,000 members and 320 branches in 1931. At the same time, the same group in New South Wales had 160,000 members. So the threat was very real. Joe Lyons managed to woo a lot of these key groups and created the UAP, but opposition to the UAP did remain in some states. What was ultimately just as fatal to the UAP and led to its eventual demise was the complete lack of a federal UAP structure from the start because it had neglected to continue on with the nationalist federal structure that it had inherited. 
Former PM Stanley Bruce, who was re-elected to his seat in 31, along with Richard Casey, who was first elected in 31, discussed the pressing need to recreate a federal body. Casey even drafted a proposal that was supported by Lyons and was supposed to be discussed at the Interstate Conference in 1934, but this didn't occur. Something else, of course, significant did occur, which was the election of Robert Menzies to part federal parliament. But back to the UAP, as I think is common to most political parties in the Australian federal system with such short terms, it's easy to forget the bigger picture when you are constantly consumed by the day-to-day of politics, almost constantly planning for and fighting elections and For Lyons and his colleagues, they were in the midst of one of the most severe financial crises our nation has ever seen, and they were on the brink of another world war. So I don't think we can really blame Lyons and his colleagues for the demise of the Federal Nationalist Party infrastructure. However, the loss of that infrastructure would soon be very keenly felt by Menzies in particular. So while Lyons and his team were winning successive elections in 31, 34 and 37, what were the non-Labour, the liberal-minded people in the states up to? Naturally, they were fighting themselves and they were fighting the UAP. Most of the states didn't embrace the UAP. They had multiple parties within many states and their main relationship with the UAP was just at election time. So in 1939, Lyons passes away. Not long after Menzies had resigned from his cabinet, Menzies takes over as PM. World War II begins, Menzies loses leadership, the coalition loses government, and Menzies is attacked in the most deeply personal ways. So what did Menzies do? He demonstrated what I do believe is the greatest act of political and personal resilience our nation has ever seen. He started weekly radio broadcasts outlining his vision for the nation commenting on topical policy issues. He took on the leadership of the UAP again in 43. He successfully spearheaded the no campaign for the powers referendum and then personally wrote to like-minded groups around Australia to invite them to a meeting in Canberra in 1944 to discuss the formation of a new party, the platform and structure of which he had already drafted. Menzies gave the opening and closing addresses at the October Canberra conference and did the same and chaired the meeting and did the same at Albury. This all sounds fairly straightforward in terms of who was the driving force behind the creation of the Liberal Party of Australia, yet scholars such as Ian Hancock have said the following. Even the most cursory examination of chronology and process would cast doubt on the extravagant claims made about Menzies' role in the formation of the Liberal Party. He was certainly not the founder of the Liberal Party. Hancock outlines a number of minor and forgotten figures and major and forgotten figures who assisted Menzies. Starr concurs with Hancock's broad thesis, stating, it is true that the Liberal Party was not entirely the work of Menzies, but that he had provided the plans and the cement and the blueprint. Jared Henderson states, it was not Robert Menzies' work alone, yet without Menzies, it's unlikely that a unified national non-Labour party could have been formed in the mid-1940s, if at all. Anne Henderson, who is with us today, notes that, as Hancock says, it is true there were many people involved in the formation of the Liberal Party, and just as importantly notes, there is little doubt such an achievement would never have resulted without Robert Menzies. Unity among those disparate groups and individuals did not come easily, even after the party was proclaimed. Menzies was the spearhead and organiser, 
that made ultimate success possible. And your book, Men's Is at War, is an invaluable resource and was very helpful to me when I was putting my speech, my research together. So thank you. So who were these minor and major individuals who Hancock in particular attributes with a major part in the formation of the Liberal Party of Australia? This is where we go back to Cluedo to piece together our suspects who should have been provided with more equal recognition at the time and over decades since. I think it's fitting here in Victoria to start with the Victorian Elizabeth May, as she was known, Couchman. She was a true trailblazer. In 1927, she became the Victorian president of the all-powerful Australian Women's National League, which in the midst of the First World War had 420 branches and 50,000 female members. A very strong structure in terms of their organisation, which is not dissimilar to the one the Liberal Party would adopt. Couchman and a number of her female colleagues were invited to Canberra and Albury, the Canberra and Albury meetings, and over many months, through very hard work, convinced their members that the AWNL should fold so that they could all join the Liberal Party instead. We also have William Anderson, a World War I veteran, successful businessman. He was vehemently anti-socialist and thus anti-Labor, but he was disappointed with the UAP. He was also here in Victoria. So he formed the Services and Citizens Party, who, along with other splinter groups, had managed to take around 20% of the vote in Victoria at the federal election in 1943. So Menzies invited Anderson along to the conferences and he became the first president of the new Liberal Party of Victoria between 45 and 48 and then federal president in 51 to 56. We have Charles Kemp, and David, I think, has just stepped up, who's known to all of us, certainly in Victoria, but within the Liberal Party and around Australia as well. He was the economic advisor to the Institute of Public Affairs, which had been established in 1943. With his economic training and business connections, Kemp was the principal draftsman of Looking Forward, which proposed economic policies and suggestions to improve business and union relations. Menzies favourably mentioned Looking Forward at the Canberra Conference. Kemp has been described as the founding thinker of the Liberal Party and Hancock claims the IPA had an active role in bringing together the AWNL, United Australia Party Organisation, Middle Class Party and Services and Citizens Party in Victoria to discuss a new political party before the Liberal Party was formed. Ernest White from New South Wales also served in World War I and received the military costs for his service. When he returned home, he grew his father's timber business, which prospered, and he was alarmed again at Labor's federal success. So he established the Liberal Democratic Party in response in New South Wales and contested federal and state elections. They participated in early merger talks in New South Wales with the UAP, Country Party and Commonwealth Party, but ultimately sank the proposal by withdrawing from the talks. White ended up serving on the provisional Liberal Party Federal ex Executive in 1944. Thomas Ritchie, final suspect, was a talented businessman and volunteer and gained a diploma in electrical and mechanical engineering from the Working Men's College. He proved to be an excellent businessman, was appointed to a range of board positions and was the Provisional Liberal Party Chair in 1944 and inaugural President in 1945. He raised huge sums of money for the party and persuaded the Queenslanders to actually join the Liberal Party, which they hadn't, and drafted the plan for the federal organisation. 
So we have a list of strong and impressive potential co-founders of the Liberal Party of Australia, and there is absolutely no doubt that they all played important and influential roles. They contributed members, knowledge as to how to successfully organise a political organisation, party and structure, and they raised funds and they volunteered. But were those roles and contributions so great as to say that the founding of the Liberal Party of Australia was not Menzies' miracle. I say no, and here are my 10 reasons why I firmly believe that the formation of the Liberal Party of Australia was Menzies' miracle. Number one, Menzies arranged the founding conferences. The simple fact is, and it's a purely practical point, Menzies was the person who instigated the conferences and invited everybody. Nobody else did that. Number two, Menzies presented the vision and chaired the conferences. He chaired the Canberra and Aubrey meetings, outlined the organisational and policy blueprints, which formed the basis of the Liberal Party of Australia. Even Hancock agrees that he was a brilliant chair and principal spokesperson. Adding more weight to the argument Menzies drafted the blueprint for the new Liberal Party is the document discovered by Troy Brampston, reproduced in his book Robert Menzies' The Art of Politics, which is on sale here today, and the full document is reproduced in the appendix. It is a very helpful primary source that, as Troy says in his book, hasn't been given the attention that it deserves. This document shows that Menzies had formulated and communicated his plan in September, October 1943 to his colleagues. The document covers creating a single new national party and organisation, election strategies, philosophical framework and the name. Number three, Menzies had more policy experience than anyone else involved in the formation of the party. He had researched and honed his policies and platforms over at least 16 years from the time he was elected to the Victorian Parliament in 1928. He further refined his thinking, policies and platform in the radio broadcasts he made through 1942-44, of which there were 105 in total. His thoughts are on the record. And this was well before any serious merger talks were underway. Perhaps the most important talk, The Forgotten People, that best encapsulates the platform the Liberal Party would adopt, was broadcast on the 22nd of May 1942, well before the formation of the party. As Judith Brett also notes in the book that will be launched this afternoon that Zach edited and did a brilliant job, and this is, again, a really important sort of primary source, there is strong evidence Menzies was reading Edmund Burke's 1770 Thoughts on the Cause of the Present Discontents in December 1942, again, well before the formation of the party. He had a particular interest in the formation of parties and the classic Burkean notion that members of parliament should not be bound by the views of those who elect them but exercise their own judgment. There's no other individual involved in the formation of the party who matched the breadth of his policy work. How am I going for time, Georgina? I can just summarise. Okay. I will just skip over. You can buy the book next year to get the full explanation of my other reasons, but I'll give you the top points. So number four, Menzies had more political experience than anyone. He'd grown up in political households. His dad was a member of parliament. His uncle was a member of parliament. His father-in-law was a member of parliament. He lived and breathed politics from a young age. Number five, Menzies had observed other parties and the Westminster system in a way that I doubt if any other people who contributed to the formation had. Number six, Menzies had Australia-wide contacts and profile. He had previously been Prime Minister. He had toured the nation for the Powers referendum. He knew everybody. Nobody else had that national profile or the connections. 
Uh, importantly, and the history that I went through at the start of this talk shows that every single other person who had tried to create a lasting, truly national organisation had failed. Menzies was the only person who succeeded. Number eight, Menzies' electoral success as Prime Minister cemented the party. The problem previously with the Nationalists and the UAP was the electoral success ran out before the party could probably cement itself, even though the parties weren't particularly strong to do so. Number nine, success is impossible without a leader, no matter how many people help to create the election victory or the formation of the party or whatever it might be, you need that leadership without a strong leader, as we have seen so many times on both sides of politics in Australia, the party and the government will ultimately fail. Finally, my final point, number 10, as to why Menzies was the founder of the Liberal Party and why it was his miracle. He staged the ultimate comeback of all time in Australian politics and he deserves to be recognised for doing such an outstanding job to get up off the floor where he lay bleeding and come back and create the Federal Liberal Party, bring his colleagues, people who had said terrible things about him together and go on to make us the Liberal Party of Australia, one of the most successful parties of government who have done such a wonderful job to ensure that Australia is and remains the strong, stable, respectful democracy that we are. Thank you very much. Congratulations to Zach and Regina and David for keeping this institute going. As I know from experience, the most important thing about institutes is to keep on going, prevail. And when Jared is asked, how are you going? He says, we're still here. And here we are. Cole, terrific. You, that paper will be very important to establish who founded the Liberal Party. So let's go back to 1947. I wasn't born, I can say that much. It, it was a pleasant late winter Saturday afternoon in Melbourne. Not different from today, although it was August. Date, 16th of August, 1947. Record snowfalls across the Victorian Alps meant a crisp chill for a dry but cloudy day in Melbourne. Robert Menzies, Australia's Federal Liberal Party opposition leader, was attending a friend's lawn tennis party and heard over the radio the very brief words of Australian Prime Minister Ben Chifley announcing his government would nationalise Australia's trading banks. The announcement was as brief as it was sudden. Menzies' first reaction was to think the move would not be unpopular. He recalled the anger felt towards banks for their refusal of credit during the Depression, then of not-so-distant memory. Ben Chifley, likewise, remembered this, but with a long-standing resentment at the banks, seeing them as a major reason for the failure of the Scullin government, 1929-31. Chifley was confident in his move that Saturday, as the manner of his announcement seemed to indicate. His erstwhile legal expert, Labor's Minister for Foreign Affairs, Dr Bert Evatt, also Attorney-General, had assured him the legislation would survive any challenges. The announcement was made in just one sentence to the press, a mere 42 words after a hastily convened Cabinet meeting in Canberra on a Saturday. Alas for the Labor Prime Minister, it would prove to be a sadly misjudged step. In time, it would become his nemesis. Chifley had handed his rival Robert Menzies a platform to campaign on all the way to the December 1949 election, and that would be a landslide for the Liberal and Country parties in coalition. 
A showdown between Labor and Capital had been coming for three decades. How this would play out in Australia during the late 1940s and 1950s was not to be imagined. Nationalisation of Australia's banks and the notion that private banking lay at the heart of capitalism had existed from the earliest Labor days of the 1890s. After the debacle of the Scullin government and its failure to manage the credit and financial crisis, not least from its own schism, in 1932 the ALP State Executive in New South Wales produced a report that exonerated the Labor Scullin government and claimed that the solution in the future was the nationalisation of all Australian banking business. Chifley himself, as a member of the Lions United Australia Party Government's 1930-1937 Royal Commission into Monetary and Banking Systems, had submitted a minority report, this is from Chifley, and advocated the nationalisation of all private banking. So Chifley was keen on nationalisation from an early time. Now, the war years had seen Australia's private banks having to operate, as many of you will know, under the National Security Regulations. Much of their investments were forcibly secured with the Commonwealth Bank, which was then regarded as Australia's central bank. We didn't have a reserve bank. At the cessation of hostilities in Europe in May 1945, the banks had looked forward to an easing of the war regulations, only to discover that the Labor government intended the regulations to continue. Disruption of business from industrial action had increased, and this added to inflation. The economic times were challenging and the Chifley government saw the solution in government having greater control of the financial sector. Under the Banking Act of 1945, local authorities and state governments were banned from dealing with the private banks. And this meant the private banks now found themselves on a battle footing competing with the Commonwealth Bank as if with one hand tied. With this threat to the independence of Australia's trading banks, it was only Leslie J. McConnon, Chief Executive of the National Bank of Australasia, who attempted any pushback by trying to unite the banks in protest. If Geoffrey Blaney had come today, he could tell you all about it. He wrote an excellent book on it. The other banks, too worried about government reprisals, hung back. But McConnon's moment would come after August 1947. He was the man historian Geoffrey Blaney has described as, quote, being interested least in banking and most in public affairs. Now, in such an atmosphere, Menzies did not successfully capitalise on the banking issue during the 1946 election campaign, which, as those of you who read about this will realise, was of great disappointment to the Liberal Party. Subsequently, in May 1947, feeling comfortable with his success at the election, his first as Labor leader, Chifley attempted to widen the orders of the 45 Act to apply to additional authorities such as local councils. This led to a challenge in the High Court to the legislation by the wealthy Melbourne City Council, all starts in Melbourne, and who wanted the right to choose its own bank. On Wednesday the 13th of August 1947, the High Court found against the federal government a move which angered Chifley. Menzies has written that it was the only time he ever noted Chifley to have lost his temper. The government now faced the prospect of the private banks challenging the entire Act. It was just three days later that Chifley would announce his government's decision to nationalise Australia's banking system. Reaction was immediate. We think we're in disruptive times. You should read the newspapers for this. The following Monday, newspapers were leading with front-page headlines announcing the move as creating national shockwaves. The Argus in Melbourne threw the switch to extreme with a heading, totalitarianism, says bank spokesman. And the subheading was, Menzies declares to Russia for a parallel. The Sydney Morning Herald headline, Bank Decision Staggers Community. 
reporting, quote, leading industrialists and others said yesterday that the proposed banking monopoly would endanger the nation's economy and threaten private enterprise and individual liberty. And this was just the beginning of a national outcry about the negative implications of the move against Australia's banks. Now, from the point of view of seven decades later, it is hard to conceive that Chifley and Labor might have thought such a move could be sustained in a market economy like Australia. It smacked of unguarded socialism at the very least, and so Menzies bolted for the blocks on day one. In spite of growing disruptions to industry by radical actions, many influenced by the Communist Party of Australia, it would not be until faced with legislation to nationalise Australia's trading banks that voters were able to connect warnings of communist-inspired activity to their actual lives. Jobs had been easy to find in the post-war economy. Peacetime after war had its own rewards. As Prime Minister, Ben Chifley had successfully handled the ongoing repayment of massive war debts, in particular by getting Labor to eventually accept Australia's ratification of the Bretton Woods Agreement, which installed the International Monetary Fund, still going today. Ongoing industry disruptions had not, up till 1947, had a real impact on daily life. But then came the banking protest over nationalisation and, like a referendum campaign, we're about to have another one, ordinary citizens suddenly were awash with information overdrive as to how socialisation and government control of the market would impact on a free economy. Communism is a growing menace in post-war Europe as well and in domestic union disruption had resonance in the nationalisation of the banks. Commentary and accusations filled daily newspapers. There were accusations of government secrecy, plotting to ambush the banks, and that the government had become dictatorial, suggestions that nationalisation would soon be extended to the insurance industry, notions that UK banks trading in Australia would close, reports that the government would compulsorily acquire shares in banks at a low price, and predictions that there would be large job losses as the trading banks closed. Not only were banking employees on the march, bank customers and other ordinary Australians joined them. Menzies now spoke directly to the middle-class voters he had invoked in his radio talks in 1942-43, and they were massed and angry. Before the end of August 1947, Menzies was addressing vast rallies of protesting bank employees and other interested individuals, such as workers employed in the insurance industry. Photos in newspapers, those days were the days when all the news came from the newspapers and radio, they showed members spilling out from the function centres onto the streets in their thousands, wide expanses of heads, hats, men and women. The work behind the scenes of Leslie McConnell and his NBA was nothing short of a well-oiled political machine. A good account of it can be found in Geoffrey Boney's Golden Paper. And for a full account of the anti-nationalisation campaign itself, dig out a copy of A.L. May's The Battles for the Banks. The Sydney Morning Herald reported on its front page on Thursday the 25th of September that members of parliament had received some 500,000 signatures on petitions opposing bank nationalisation. By the end of the year, the print industry, in a country of around 8 million, was celebrating rising income from millions of booklets of pamphlets against nationalisation, largely funded by the banks, especially the FBA. Chifley was not for turning. On Tuesday the 17th of September... Caucus having approved bank nationalisation the day before, Australians woke to read of the realities of the move. Chifley had announced that the private banks would be, quote, taken over by the Commonwealth Bank, either by agreement or by compulsory acquisition. 
The terms would be, quote, just, and compensation for property compulsory acquired would be, quote, by agreement or failing agreement by a federal court of claims. Can you imagine it happening today? He added that the changeover might take years. In the Parliament, the Prime Minister spoke confidently, even smugly, that there was nothing in the Constitution to prevent the government taking over banking, if it was thought appropriate, and thus there would be no referendum. The class war in Australia was on as never before. In the House of Representatives on the 18th of September, Menzies moved a censure motion where he accused Giffrey of seeking to avoid the will of electors by refusing a referendum and not having proposed bank nationalisation in the 1946 election, but Menzies hadn't taken it up there. Menzies further agreed that Chifley was resorting to dictatorial government that undermined the financial lives of ordinary Australians, or as he put it, the vested interest of one and a half million people who do business with the trading banks. Of that number, at least 1,400,000 are in the very nature of things people of modest means. Have they no, quote, vested interest? Have they no right in this life to control their own finances or to go from one bank to another for needed accommodation? A politically controlled government, banking and monopoly, the only one to be created in any English-speaking country or any democratic country in the world will be an instrument of despotism and oppression. After a day or so, the government gagged about the censure motion. The status quo prevailed. Chifley was secure and knowing two years must pass before another election and he had a comfortable majority. Meanwhile, in spite of his energised and resolute campaign, Menzies was cautious when a sudden, unexpected Victorian state election was announced and the Liberal opposition fought it on the banking issue. But the Victorian election held on Saturday the 8th of November 1947, in which Menzies campaigned heavily on the banking issue, saw the defeat of John Cain's Labor government and the Liberal Country Party opposition come back into government. At that moment, it would have flickered in Menzies' mind that there was now hope that those who said you'll never vote with Menzies were mistaken. As the Chifley Banking Bill made its way through Parliament in late October and early November 1947, out on the hustings, Menzies' first supporter had set, supporters had sensed a return of the mood of 1931. In 1931, I had a big argument with, I think it was, I can't remember who it was, over this in the Australian, but 1931, I think, apart from 1943, was the largest landscape in Australia. And this was when groupings around the newly formed United Australia Party led by Joe Lyons, of which Menzies was a key figure, and stormed into office. Campaigning during the Victorian state election in 1947 at a large rally in Albert Park, Menzies, in top form, referred to those old-style rallies, or what reporters referred to as just like old times. Speaking in the House of Representatives and leading the debate on the banking bill in the evening of 23rd of October, Menzies was watched by record-filled galleries after hundreds had been turned away. It was an eloquent flourish by the opposition leader because there was no chance for the bill without a pass with the size of Labor's majorities in both houses. But Menzies was making a heady start on an election campaign still two years away. And he objected to the legislation, saying the bill will create in the hands of the ruling party a financial monopoly with unchecked power to grant, withhold banking facilities or bank accommodation in the case of every citizen. It will have an operation and effect far beyond the business of money changing. It will be a bill a tremendous step towards a servile state. This is the antithesis of democracy. So there's this constant feeling, this constant theme of the communist nationalisation going through the message Menzies was sending out. In return for what Menzies said, Arthur Coyle attacked him for opposing the legislation and in shrill condemnation said, imagine plunging Australia into a civil war over a lousy few pence. No matter how many millions the banks spend in this campaign, they cannot withstand the tide of progress. They are finished. 
Corwell was speaking in old-style Labor dreaming, and sadly for Labor, who could not foresee its folly, this decades-long ideological prejudice, strongly supported by the Communist Party of Australia, was about to meet its match in Australia's highest courts at the time. Chifley's banking legislation made it through the Senate at the end of November and within 24 hours was challenged in the High Court by the states of Victoria and South Australia. The High Court challenge became the longest in its history, lasting from the 8th of February, 48, to the 15th of April, a total of 39 days. The discussion about who was the better lawyer, Bert Everett, Looking at Bert Everett during this banking challenges, you'll get your answer. He wasn't as good as he thought. Bert Everett, appearing for the government, spoke for 18 days. He did not help his case with an aggressive manner and called for the disqualification of two of the judges, which was overruled by Chief Justice Latham. A majority against the government in a key finding of the court, Latham and McTiernan dissenting, was handed down on the 11th of August. It found that the prohibition of business by private banks breached the freedom of interstate trade and commerce protected by Section 92 of the Constitution. An appeal to the Privy Council followed. Beginning in mid-March 49, Bert Everett appearing again for the government, the UK's Privy Council hearing lasted 37 days, during which Everett spoke for 22 days. Two judges died before it finished. Maybe he had some part in that. For all that, the government's appeal was once again lost. The Privy Council handing down its decision on the 26th of July. Chifley's banking legislation lay in tatters. The federal election was just months away. Now, for all that, Menzies now worried that the opposition would not be able to sustain the banking campaign because Labor had finally had its legislation rejected. He also had doubts that the banks would be able to deliver. It was clear that if the banking issue could be kept alive, the coalition would defeat Labor. The banks continued to argue, however, that they were not safe while Chifley and Labor stayed in opposition. Crucially for Menzies, the NBA's McConnell made a deal. If the opposition could keep up the momentum of positive hope for change, the bank officers' campaign would be re-energised to defeat Chifley on the banking issue. And it was. As historian David Day has written, and we've had our differences, of the 1949 federal election result, in view of the anti-bank nationalisation campaign waged by Menzies and the opposition, says Day, the adverse vote was a rejection of further socialisation and a poll on Chifley's plan for bank nationalisation. During the Menzies era to follow, reform of the Australian banking system continued. Labor's rejection of sections of the coalition's legislation to reform the Invalid Banking Act of 47 was used to call a double dissolution election in 1951. The result delivered a healthy majority in both houses for Menzies, after which the 47 Banking Act was repealed. In 53, the Commonwealth Trading Bank was established and a further Banking Act limited some of the controls that had been imposed on the trading banks. In 1957, the Menzies government began legislation to set up the Reserve Bank of Australia and the Commonwealth Banking Corporation. The legislation was finally passed in January 1960. Further arrangements in the early 1960s saw the trading banks and the Reserve Bank develop special term loan funds provided by the trading banks to meet Australia's growing development. In 1964, the Australian Bankers Export Refinance Corporation came into being, and in this way, the Menzies years quietly changed Australia's banking system for all time. But in conclusion, I'll let Robert Menzies have the final word. Writing of Ben Chifley and the bank nationalisation saga decades after, in afternoon light, Menzies concluded with respect to Chifley as follows. 
By upholding the principles of his party, he paradoxically helped destroy his party. If one's ideas are so rigid that they will not bend, the chances are that they will break. Socialization led chiefly to defeat. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from the presenters at our 2022 conference on this summer series of the Afternoon Light podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute. To hear more from the Robert Menzies Institute, please make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Thank you.